Welcome. Um, what am I trying to say? This is a great start. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's just gone. It's gone. Lost it. I'm Samuel. Um, I'm supposed to be preaching this morning if I can remember what I was going to say. Um, Steve's away for the next couple of weeks and so um, you get to hang out with me for a little bit. Obviously, some people heard that I was preaching and decided to go on holidays instead. No, it's the, it's the long weekend. But uh, we get the privilege of looking at the five solars over the next five weeks. We're having a little bit of a break from our Exodus series and we're going to look at the five solars in the lead up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Now, it's easy uh, for us to look back sometimes and to see the Reformation and to, and to see the negative outcomes of the Reformation. It's, it was, you know, it was a sad, it was a sad thing uh, for it to happen, that there was division and that there was war and there was strife. So why is it worth celebrating the Reformation? Was the debating, the division and often the bloodshed worth the gains of the Reformation? Well, I hope that in this five-part series, the answer will come back a resounding yes. I think, I hope that each week as we look at another element of the five solas, that we'll come to the conclusion that yes, it was important and it is worth celebrating. These uh, five sola, these five distinctives are hallmarks of evangelical Christianity. They summarize what the Bible teaches explicitly or implicitly. These are key teachings or doctrines. Um, now, it's not essential for you to know the five solas or to agree with all of the five solas to come to, to, to saving faith, but we think that they're pretty important, important enough for us to get kicked out of churches over or to stir up trouble, not for the sake of trouble, but for the sake of being faithful to God. So as we begin our look at the five sola, we're going to start with sola scriptura. Scripture alone, if you don't speak Latin. And to do that, we're going to start with a story. But even before we start with that, I'm going to start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to hear from you. And we know, Lord, that where we can hear from you is in your word that you have delivered to us. And we pray, Lord, this morning that the, that the, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you a story. Back in the day, you only had one institutional church. You didn't walk down the street like today and there was Baptist church and there was um, a Prezi church and then there was a Roman Catholic church. There was one church and there was one church in your neighborhood or region and... Um, Whenever there was disagreement in the church about how things should go, a bunch of the bigwigs would get together, they'd have this thing called a council, and they'd figure stuff out. Anyways, after about a thousand years, there was a bit of a division forming between East and West. And so um, the, the Latin-speaking Roman church in the, in, the, um, in the West and the Greek-speaking church in the East, uh, they, they said... Look, we're we're not really on the same page. The uh, the guys in the in the east said, "Look, we don't really think the Pope should be our boss," amongst other things. And so they said, "We'll still be friends, but 
we're not going to not going to be in the same place anymore. It's kind of like housemates, you know. They had a bit of a tussle, and one of them moved next door, um, and they still bump into each other and they have chats and they talk to each other, but they're not living in the same house anymore. So the East and West split up, and we now know them as the Roman Catholic Church of the West and the Eastern Orthodox Church of the East. Um, and they've taken slightly different directions and gone different ways. But about 500 years after that, in the Western Church, um, there was a fellow called Martin. He lived in Germany. And he was at law school. He was, he was, he was training to be a lawyer, but much to his father's disgust, he quit law school and he went and he joined, he went to Bible college and he tried to be a super spiritual Christian and he studied, uh, heaps of stuff and eventually he became a Bible college lecturer or a lecturer at a university on theology. And he started noticing some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church that seemed a little bit out of place with the scripture that he was studying. And specifically, he noticed there was some, there was some problems with the practice of selling indulgences, um, where you could do a good work, like giving money to the church, and receive time off um, punishment. And in Martin's day, the system was being used to abuse, was being abused to raise money for the church. So Martin did a bit of digging around in the scriptures and he discovered not only was the system being abused, but the whole system wasn't found in scripture. And so he prepared a document called the 95 Theses where he laid out some of his propositions, mainly in relation to indulgences, and he wanted to have a good old academic um, argument. He wanted to say, look, these are some issues. I want to have a chat about this. Let's figure this stuff out. Little did he know that he would start ruffling some feathers and eventually... As he kept digging through the scriptures, it got to the point where he kept coming up with stuff where he was like, hang on a sec, the scriptures aren't saying, this is what the scriptures are saying. And he got into a bit of trouble. He studied his Bible more and more and he saw that a lot of the church's teaching was um, not only absent from scripture, but some cases the practices were in opposition to what the scriptures said. And in this, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther had inadvertently started the Reformation. He started a process by which people would, like himself, would seek out the scriptures and history in the hope of reforming the church to the way that God said it should be. So eventually, Dr. Martin ruffled enough feathers that he was called to a, he was called into like a court called the, the Diet of Worms. And he was challenged in front of a bunch of powerful people and powerful religious people. And they, they questioned him and they said, are you going to recant from your teachings? And he responded with a very famous quote that is kind of um, attributed as the, the beginning of this idea of sola scriptura. Martin said, in response to the question, are you going to recant? He said, unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture... Or, since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of the Pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, by manifest reasoning, I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I stand, I can do no other. God help me. 
This, this quote is often credited as being the start of this, this, this reclaiming of this idea of sola scriptura. We see in Martin Luther's response, in the face of the most powerful men in the country, with his fate hanging in the balance, he said, Scripture is my guide. He didn't care what Pope or Council said. He thought what the Scriptures plainly said was what would be his guide. Scripture would be the marker between true and false teaching. Now, at this point, in our, you know, us Aussies, we're cheering for Martin Luther. We hate authority figures. We say, yeah, down with those... Um, down with those those self-righteous religious folk. But that's not what Luther was trying to do. He wasn't trying to take on the hierarchy. He wasn't trying to knock down the tall poppies. He wasn't trying to express independence. Luther simply wanted the church to turn to the scriptures. And he was willing to take the fight to the top dogs. Now, unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church was unwilling to be reformed from within uh, with Martin Luther's help. So they kicked him out. And over the years that, meant, that followed, many, many people would follow in his footsteps, either being kicked out by the church or willingly leaving the church to pursue biblical Christianity. And we remember some of their names today because of their contribution to the Reformation. If you, know, if you have heard names like um, Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, and Thomas Cranmer, they might ring a bell because of the contribution that they have had to the Reformation. And amongst other things, these fellows have one thing in common. All these guys wanted to go back to the scriptures, to go to the scriptures alone as their rule of faith and practice. They didn't go to Pope or history or tradition or anything else as their final authority. Those things can help along the way, but their final authority is scripture. Instead, they wanted to turn to God, and God speaks through his word, and that word is scripture. So, when we talk about Scripture alone, what are we talking about? What does Scripture alone mean? Alone in terms of what? Well, from this story, we start to see the historical context that this that this teaching comes out of. Because each of the each of the five solas is something alone. The you know sola scriptura or sola sola fide, faith alone. And they're not saying that they're alone in reference to each other. They're saying alone in reference to something else. Um, around so for instance faith alone it's faith that saves us not something else and for the scripture they're saying scripture is our final authority not scripture and something else or not something else altogether it's a summary of a reformation idea it's two words it's hard to kind of to 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 bring a whole uh, heap of writing and stuff into uh, you know to summarize it easily but these two words are meant to be a summary of that teaching about the scripture that comes out of the reformation but the theory is that each of these sola especially even with sola scriptura it's not meant to be something that's new it's not meant to be a new innovation it's meant to be something that is biblical and from old now I don't know about you, but sometimes you have those embarrassing moments when you mispronounce a word and you mispronounce it so often or you think you're pronouncing it right anyway that it becomes your it becomes what you think is the right way. I, I, for instance, I used to think it was espresso instead of espresso. And I used to correct people. And I used to think that people spelt it wrong <laughs> until one day when I you know, learned that I'd misused, I'd misused the word. And now I can... Um, in grace and love, correct other people who are pronouncing it uh, wrong. It's espresso. 
But it's a phenomenon that works with Christianity because sometimes it's easy for us to pick up something and run with it without testing it. And then we pass that on to somebody else and somebody else learns from that and somebody else learns from that. And before we know it, we've got something that is widespread but not necessarily verified by God in Scripture. And so that's why we need the Scriptures. We need to be able to come back to the Scriptures. It's like when on Facebook we've all had those times when there's been that uh, that something that went viral, this scandalous thing that goes viral. And it gets spread everywhere before somebody goes, well, hang on a sec, let's check the facts. And it might turn out that it was all it was all a big hubbub about nothing. So when it comes to matters of faith, we need something to test ourselves by. We need something or someone that is reliable, trustworthy, authoritative to guide us. We need somewhere where we can go to ask the big questions like, how can I have eternal life? What must I do to be saved? Who will save me from this body of death? And we need to be able to find confidence in our answer. And we know that the person to talk about these things to is God. God has the answers to this. God is the one who who can save us from this body of death. God is the one who can answer all our deepest needs. But I can't just waltz into the throne room of God now and talk to him face to face. I can't just go and, and ask him. I'm sure I can pray and ask him in prayer, but I can't physically stand and talk with God face to face. That's why I need the scriptures. I need the words of God to me. This is our earthly salt, our earthly source. This is what God delivered us in kindness. And in his sovereignty, he, he, he prepared it and preserved it for us. Scripture is the word of God. And to understand what scripture alone means, we must comprehend what the scriptures are. Now, we all know, uh, if we're a Christian here today, we, we, we know we're talking about the scriptures, we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. But bear with me a minute, I want to talk about the idea of scripture. Why is it so much value? Why is it so valuable? To, why do we take these 66 diverse um, writings from different times and ages and put them together and value them? It's because it's the word of God. You see, our God is a speaking God. From the first, from the beginning, God created the world in speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. God began the world with a word, and he didn't stop there. Throughout our history, God is speaking to us. He spoke to create the world. He spoke to the first humans. He spoke to the humans that came after that. He spoke to Abraham, our forefather. He spoke to the children of Israel as he covenanted with them. He spoke to us through Jesus. And he spoke to us through the apostles and their writings. God has this pattern of speaking to us. But more than, oh, oh, sorry, with that, he has a pattern of having his words written down for us. Throughout biblical history, there's been a pattern of these words being recorded, even at his own request. And we've seen in Exodus, and we'll see this verse in a few weeks, the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with Israel. He made a covenant and he had it recorded down so that it could be referred back to. And he also asked that his words be passed on to the next generation. 
We know those well-known words from Deuteronomy where, when, when Moses is saying, you know, lay up these words in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. There shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, taking, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. God expected his words to be collected and treasured and used as a guide and rule. And the scripture is that collection of God's words. They include quotations of stuff that God said, oracles that he put on the mouths of prophets, historical narratives of God and his people, letters about him, and even poetry that he inspired. And all of this was written and collected by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And it contains all we need to know about God. It tells us what we need to know about ourselves. It tells us how we can receive eternal life tells us how we ought to live. God has prepared and preserved his words for us. Now, we already knew that, I'm sure. It's probably not news to many of you that the Bible is the scripture. But so what? Well, it means for us, who cannot yet speak face-to-face with God, and we don't have him delivering, um, we don't have prophets running around uh, delivering the oracles of God means for us that what we must believe about him and what we must do in response is found here. There's nowhere else we can go for authoritative answers. What about the church or, author- or, um, or ancient writings or other Christians? Surely they can give us answers about these things. Yes, they can, but they can only give us answers insofar as they're relying on what the scripture says. For instance... If you were to ask me about my birth date, I could tell you what my birth date is. Um, as much as it is dear to me and a part of my life and it's been taught to me from a young age, I'm not actually the arbiter of my birth date. I have a birth certificate, which is the, the source which I turn to to know that my birthday is correct and what I've been taught throughout my whole life is correct. I need somebody who was there and who witnessed the events to record down the day I was born and have it certified on a birth certificate. And now I can refer back to that birth certificate to know the day that I was born. And it's that document that, you know, things like banks and passport office are interested in to verify my birth date. They don't don't care what I tell them. They want to know what the official document says. And the thing is, with Scripture, it is our authoritative document on what we believe. It's how we ought to live. We weren't there on the day, and so we needed people to write it down for us and pass it to us. Now, people throughout history can say all kinds of things about Christian faith and practice, but unless it matches up with the authoritative document, the Bible, we don't take it seriously. And this is the position that Luther found himself in. He was not willing to dump the original message of the scripture in favor of what other people wanted to add to Christianity or wanted to say about Christianity. He wanted the real deal. He wanted to see the birth certificate of Christianity to be the illuminator. And not surprisingly, the Bible has examples of people who did this themselves when they were referring in amongst them the scriptures to other scriptures. And Jesus gives us a fantastic example of what it looked like to use the scriptures as a rule of faith and practice. We read it just before. When Jesus was tempted in the desert, what did he do? He didn't say, I'm the son of God, get lost. He said, as the scriptures say, and he answered 
Satan's temptations to, to go against God's word. He's answered Satan's um, accusations on, um, on matters of faith and doctrine with scripture. The scriptures informed how he responded and what he believed. And Jesus also challenged the Pharisees with scripture. He often used scripture to show the Pharisees how they were actually living lives in contrary to the scriptures. Another example is Paul when he was travelling around on his mission trips and he's preaching the gospel and he got to this, this region called Berea and he commended the Bereans and he said, through Acts, Luke said, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They went back to their authoritative source to check if what they were being taught was true. And I hope you feel the free to do the same thing today as I'm talking about this stuff. And next week and the week after, we go back to the scriptures as our authoritative source, not what some dude says in a microphone up the front. So if today I started to teach you that Christians must only wear purple clothes all the time, I would expect you to say, mm, I'm not sure about that, but let me consult the scriptures. Now, if we've been taught over time and we know the scriptures well enough, we know when stuff sounds ridiculous off the top of our head. But even when it comes down to the smaller and more, um, you know, when it comes to other matters as well, we should be willing to go to the scriptures um, to see what God has to say. So scripture alone is the rule, the guide, the standard of Christianity. It is what is binding for us on this earth. We obey the scriptures but we must obey it as the words from God. It can be trusted where broken and sinful humankind cannot. Now, as part of this, as part of this doctrine of Scripture alone, we see that um, Scripture is also clear. And this is an important part of Scripture, the, the idea of Scripture alone, because if Scripture is not clear, then it's it it kind of defeats the. Maybe that's not the right way of saying it. But it's our, it's our, it's, our, it's no good to us if scripture is our binding guide and we can't understand it. That makes sense. It, it's been said sometimes that scripture or the gospel is shallow enough for a child to get in and deep enough for a theologian to flounder. The message of scripture is understandable by anyone of sound mind. They can, should be able to read the scriptures and come and see the message that Jesus saves sinners through repentance and faith. And it's simple and clear enough for a child to be taught the scriptures and receive faith. We have the example of Timothy, where Paul says, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, even though scripture is clear and it's available, it doesn't mean that it's clear on every point. The essentials of faith and godly living are abundantly clear throughout scriptures. But there's other stuff there that still confuses us to this day. There's stuff in there that we don't get because we're not culturally aligned with the culture of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's complexity and there's depth in the scriptures. But this complexity and depth doesn't hide the underlying message. One of the confessions of faith that came out of the Reformation says this thing. It says this. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. 
Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or another that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. In summary, we've asked the question, what does Scripture alone mean? And we've established that Scripture's being the record of God's word to us is the only authoritative guide on Christian faith and living. And not only that, it's essentially clear and available to God's people. So at this point, I want to briefly look at what Scripture alone does not mean. We'll look at three things that Scripture alone is not. Three things that you might come to the conclusion of, but would um, not really be getting to the crux of what Scripture alone is. Scripture alone, Scripture is not necessary for salvation. Sometimes, you know, we love our Bible so much and we appreciate it and we treasure it and we value it. Sometimes it seems like we're almost worshipping it because we hold it in such high regard. Like we have it in our name. We're Eastgate Bible Church. We love it and we lay upon ourselves the burden to read it every day. But we study them, you know, the scriptures are precious to us. We study them here in church, in our homes, in a community group. And some of us are even um, give up our jobs to go and, and study it or to learn it um, full time. But as much as we love and we treasure the scriptures, as word, God's words to us, we know that the scriptures are both not necessary for salvation and they're not salvation itself. Jesus said to the Jews what we read before, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have eternal life. Jesus is clearly pointing out that it's not the scriptures themselves that save, but they were pointing to the one who actually did the saving. The scriptures illuminate Jesus, they give us the words of Jesus, but it's actually Jesus, the God-man, who is the salvation, not the book. And it's also worth noting that the scriptures are not, not a precursor to salvation. You don't need to read them or keep reading them to stay saved. God doesn't set barriers of literacy and um, you know, getting the Bible in your own language to be saved. We do need to receive the gospel... But that might be through the reading of God's word, by receiving it, by hearing it um, read out. Or it could be by somebody explaining the gospel in their own words, like we do here every Sunday. So whether you read it in the scriptures, whether you hear it being read, or whether you hear somebody else explain the message, um, it's not the scriptures themselves um, that say there's also countless examples of script, in Scripture of people who come to faith without reading a word of Scripture. The thief on the cross isn't up there going, um, you know, he isn't up there listing off um, doctrines or, you know, probably had a Jewish background, but he, he didn't come to faith through the Scriptures. He came to faith through Jesus. So I encourage you to, in, in, encourage you to um, treasure God's words recorded in Scripture and share them, but don't equate the Scriptures to salvation itself. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path to salvation. 
Next, Scripture is not our only authority. Sorry. Even though the Scriptures are our only binding rule here on earth, we submit to our earthly authorities still. We still submit to our government, our spiritual leaders, and our family leaders. The Scriptures themselves remind us of our obligation to submit to those in authority over us. And the understanding that we obey the Scripture as God's highest um, word to us on this earth doesn't mean that we circumvent the other authorities that he's placed over us. And sometimes it'll be hard, even countercultural, especially for us Aussies who don't like to have people in positions of authority over us. But Scripture is not our only authority, but it is our final earthly authority as the words of God. Lastly, something that Scripture alone is not, Scripture alone is not our life manual. And I think this needs, we need to be reminded of this. You know, when we say Scripture alone, we don't mean that Scripture alone is our guide and authority on every single topic in the world. Or put it another way, the scripture alone is not a life manual or a science textbook or a, or a recipe book. You know, for instance, in the Old Testament, there's many times where we have, we have, uh, battles recorded for us and they tell us, well, the, you know, the army came down here and they came around them and they routed them and they encamped in this valley and waited for them. But the scriptures aren't trying to give us, um, instructions on how to do battle tactics. The Bible is not seeking to instruct us on these things. Rather, Scripture is our rule of faith and holy living. We should, well, it tells us what we should believe and how we should live. And sure, what the Bible says will affect most areas of, if probably all areas of our life, but it's not speaking authoritatively on things like hygiene practices. It's not a diet book. You know, the scriptures will speak to specific situations like a judge shouldn't take a bribe, like there's specific examples that the scriptures speak into as a result of our holy living or our faith. But it's not aiming to be, it's not aiming to be a guidebook for how to do everything in life. So please don't treat it like one. It's not a guide to how to spend your money, though it will speak to that. It's not a guide, it's not a parenting manual, again, though it will speak to parenting. But it's fundamentally about Jesus. It's fundamentally about the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. Scriptures are fundamentally about Jesus, not whether or not you should eat halal meat. Scripture alone doesn't mean it's the authority on every single matter of um, our different areas of life. I'm, I hope I'm saying that in a way that doesn't really, that doesn't sound like I'm saying that God's not authoritative to every area of life, but what I'm saying is the scriptures aren't seeking to be an authority on these things. So, <clears throat> in closing, I mean, this topic tends to be something that it's easy to talk about concepts and principles, and, and sometimes it feels like in talking about these things, we're kind of getting away from the actual message of the scriptures. So I want to close by trying to tie, I want to tie the gospel in with what we're talking about. We're talking about sola scriptura, that doctrine crystallized in the Reformation, that scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. But the reason that this doctrine ends up being so, so fundamental is because in the scriptures we find the gospel message handed down to us. 
Sure, it can be handed down from, from father to son by oral, you know, transmission. It can be handed down from priest to priest in liturgy. But the scriptures are where the message is encased for Christians to access as an external objective source. We can look back and we can see of the unchanged scriptures from the days of the apostles and even old, even back further for the Old Testament. In Jeremiah's day, there were people who, who wanted to oppose what God said. They wanted to twist things uh, to their own way. In Jeremiah's day, it was the false prophets. In Jesus' day, he had the Pharisees who wanted to, to twist the scriptures to their own way. In the apostles' day, it was the Judaizers. In the days of Nicaea, it was the Arians. In Luther's day, it was Roman Catholics. But in our day, the misappropriation of scripture is rife. It's not as simple as us now to point out and say, there's the bad guy over there. The misappropriation of scripture is all over the place. In fact, these days, the Roman Catholic Church does a much better job of handling the scriptures than than many of our so-called evangelical churches. We always need to be coming back and being reformed by the scriptures, hearing what God has to say. And this is the only place that we can go with certainty that we will hear what God has to say. The only place where we can go with confidence. Now, we're not always going to come away with, with the same answer on every single little point, but that the, the message is clear. The overall message is abundantly clear of the gospel. Here in the scriptures, we come to meet our firm foundation, our cornerstone that is Christ. Because of the work of the apostles and the prophets who wrote down scripture for us, Because of God's preservation of his words through history, we can know him more fully and we can understand him better. The scriptures are ultimately all about Jesus. They point us to him to seek out our eternal life and our endless joy. They illuminate for us the work of the, the, sorry, they illuminate for us by the work of the Holy Spirit, the way into union with Christ. Folks, without sola scriptura, we end up with a twisted gospel. And that's where the other solars come in that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. This solar is a foundation from which our other solars grow. Without solar scripture, we end up with a salvation that's not entered into by faith through grace. We end up with a, sal- a savior who doesn't fully rescue and a faith that ends up serving the self or, a, or an institution instead of bringing glory to God. We need scripture alone so that we can find the fullness of the gospel that sinners can receive salvation, life and light by entering in, by faith alone, into God's grace alone, through the work of Christ alone, to God's glory alone. The solas end up being for us a recapitulation of the gospel that has been twisted in times past in various ways and by various people. We need the solas today because the twisting of the gospel happens in all kinds of places. It'll even, it happens in our own hearts, as we seek earthly things in the the fleshly ways instead of God's ways. We need the solas. Even here this morning, we need to be reformed out of the old ways of sin and into the image of Christ. We need our beliefs conformed by the truth of God, and we need our way of life to follow God's way for us. So I call you today to come to the Scriptures to be reformed into God's 
image for us, to have our beliefs shaped, to have our understanding changed, to have our way of life um, brought into alignment with God's scriptures. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you deliver your word to us. Lord, you are a portion and you delivered to us um, through your word um, who you are. You illuminate for us who you are. Lord, we seek out your favor with our hearts. We ask that you would be gracious to us according to your promises that are found in scriptures. Lord, when we think about our own ways, we ask that you would, you would turn our ways into your ways. Turn our feet to your word. Please, Lord, hasten and do not delay to, to bring us under your commandments. Lord, though the world around us pulls us down and tries to pull us astray, as Satan tries to tempt us away from, from your word, we ask that, that um, we would be freed from their entanglements. Help us, Lord, not to forget your word. Lord, help us to rise and praise you with your words of praise. Help us, Lord, to to teach each other and to help each other to understand the scriptures and to search them to know how to come to eternal life. Lord, teach us your way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing in a moment. And while we're singing, if you've dropped the kids off at creche, feel free to go and grab them because afterwards we're going to share in communion.